All right, under the radar. Last week we started a new study. Uh, the last quarter we were studying the book of Hebrews. Uh, we had a great study on that. And last week we started a brand new study under the radar. A study of the Bible's unsung heroes. And last week was our first week in that study where we began this quarter with an introduction to the thoughts that we're going to be having this week. I want to take a few minutes to remind some of you who may not have been here or to just jog your memory as we get started tonight. We introduced the idea of what this, what, what, what this phrase under the radar even means, where it came from, and how there are so many figures throughout Scripture that were integral to the story, but they may not have gotten the same credit, the, the sermons, the Bible classes, and definitely don't get the spotlight that they deserve, even though they are heroes in their own right. And then we also gave the goals that we have for this class, for us to understand God's expectations for us, as well as finding our own abilities and talents. And then we went on into a study of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, talking about the body of Christ and how we are all different parts of the body coming together to fill the functioning body of Christ. And we studied that entire chapter and learned that it doesn't matter what part of the body you are or what function you have in this body, as long as you are a part of the body, that's all that matters. Because each of us have a vital role and each of us have a part to play. That is all the glory or status that you should ever care about. Whether you're a hand or a foot, or an eye or an ear, or an appendix or a pinky finger, it doesn't matter. We're all coming together to form the functioning body of Christ. We all have our roles. We all have our talents. We all were given those by God. The text says God appointed, God distributed, God gave as He willed all of those talents and functions. And the study that we are beginning tonight is going to help us find what each of our individual purposes are in the body of Christ. Each week we're going to have a different purpose, a different function, a different thing that we can all aspire to be, and we're going to be studying these individuals, looking at these unsung heroes, these figures that flew under the radar, and seeing how we can be like them. See, because like we said last week, we do not have to be an Apostle Paul or a King David. We simply have to be the best version of Ben we can be, the best version of Brian we can be, the best version of Jose that we can be in our life. And if we're doing that, that is all that God expects from us. The fact is, we looked at the parable of the talents in Matthew and we saw that the master didn't give all three of his servants five talents. It's not like he gave every servant, he had three servants there, he didn't give all of them five talents. To one he gave five, to the other he gave two, and to the other he gave one. He gave a guy one talent. We shouldn't expect to be five talent people all the time if God has been given us one talent. God doesn't care if you're a one talent person, he cares about what you did with the one talent. That's what we learned last week about what we are going to do with the talent we were given. With that, we're ready to open up our study tonight uh, with our first unsung hero. Tonight we have someone who 
would rather die than to bow down to another man. Tonight, we have a man who single-handedly had the entire government rules and decrees rewritten in the favor of God's people. Tonight, we have a man who rose from the least of society to a man born in captivity to the second most important person in all the land. Tonight, we're going to be studying about Mordecai. We're going to be studying from the book of Esther, so you can go ahead and be turning there. As you turn to the book of Esther, it's in between Nehemiah and Job. If you got to Psalms, you've gone too far. Go on back, and there's Esther. We're going to be looking at the life of Mordecai, and how even though the book of the Bible that contains his story is not named after him, right? the book of the Bible that contains his story is Esther. Not Mordecai, it's not the book of the Bible, Mordecai. I don't think it would have fit to the song. So, they, you know, so we're looking at Mordecai. And we're going to learn that he has more to do with the ten chapters of this book than the account's namesake does, Esther. So with that, we're going to be talking about the setup. The setup is in the first two chapters of the book of Esther. In chapter 1, the book of Esther tells us about the king Ahasuerus. Don't challenge me, I was there, that's how they pronounced it. I'm just kidding. Uh, king Ahasuerus, he was searching for a new wife, right? He, he, he was unhappy with Queen Vashti, and he gave a decree that forced all the virgins of the land to be sent to the king for what can only be described as an ancient Near East beauty contest. This is... Uh, Persia's next top wife. I don't know what you would call it, but this is exactly what is transpiring in this chapter. In chapter 1, in the beginning of chapter 2, this king of Persia is looking for a new wife. So he's going to decree all the people of the land to bring all of the, of the young maidens, we might say, to the kingdom to look at these women and to put them through this beauty contest and to see who would win and who would take the place of Ashti. And then in the beginning parts of chapter 2, we are introduced to this Benjamite. I like Benjamites. That's my name, Benjamin. comes from the tribe of Benjamin. This Benjamite who was the son of Jer, the grandson of Shemi, the great-grandson of Kish. And his name is Mordecai. The book is named after Esther, right? The, the queen uh, would soon become Esther, and she is the person we traditionally see as the hero of this story, right? We think about back to our Bible classes as a child, or VBS, the big scepter, and Esther going to get, you know, tell the king about all the things she needed to say. I don't want to spoil it as we get into our study tonight, but this story we automatically assume is about Esther, and Esther, I'm not trying to downplay her role in this. I know that she is, you know, some of our audience tonight, probably one of their favorite characters. Well, she is a great character in Scripture. She is just a phenomenal force for God throughout the story. She was the one who, when the rubber met the road, said what she needed to say to the king, right? So I'm not trying to downplay Esther's role tonight. I'm simply trying to show and elevate Mordecai's role. Because without Mordecai, there would have not 
been an Esther. There would not have been a Queen Esther that rose to the, to the state of queen in this land. Notice in this text tonight, in chapter 2, we, before we even read the name Esther in the text, who do we read about? Mordecai. Before Esther's name is ever even introduced or ever even talked about, we read of this man named Mordecai. If we, if we look at verse 7, we're going to be talking about that in a second, but we see that Mordecai is brought up before even Esther is brought up. And this guy named Mordecai is the one who brought up this girl named Hadassah, which is the Persian name, the Babylonian name of Esther. The same way Daniel, Meshach, and Abednego, and Shadrach, they had other names, so did Esther. And her name was Hadassah. She was also known as Esther. That was her Hebrew name. She was his uncle's daughter. What does that make her? What does that make Mordecai, right? Growing up, I always thought Mordecai was her uncle, or Mordecai, you know, I, I didn't really know. I thought some weird relate. Well, Mordecai is her older cousin. But we see that he takes on a much greater role in verse 7. Let's go ahead and read verse 7. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So from this text, we can see that Mordecai was probably Esther's older cousin who took on this role of a father figure after her parents, after her father and mother had died. The text says it straight up. It says that Mordecai took her as his own and that he brought her up the same way a father would his daughter. So he adopted Esther as his own. And as the text continues, as we continue to set up our story tonight, in the next few verses we see that when it comes to this beauty contest, guess who's winning? When it comes to this ancient Near East beauty contest, Esther is just wiping the floor with these other maidens. She is more beautiful, she is more uh, uh, great than all the other women that have been brought. In verse 7, when we introduced to him, it said that she is, this, woman, this young woman was lovely and beautiful. That's what Esther was. So she's winning this beauty contest and throughout chapter 2, and she, the whole time she's going through this, she never reveals her heritage. She never tells the people that I'm of Jewish descent, I'm, I'm a Hebrew person. She never lets them know her heritage or descent. Why? Well, verse 9 tells us that Mordecai told her not to. Mordecai tells her, do not tell others about your heritage. And guess what? She does exactly what he says. She obeyed him, it says. Why? Because she, that's her father. That's her father figure, and so she obeyed Mordecai. So she was doing so well in this contest that guess what the king did? He said, I want to move you to the greatest part of the palace, the, the greatest place for you and your, your maidens, your servants, and I want you to stay there. I want you to be in this greater place. And so she's all of a sudden moving faster and faster towards the queen uh, status. 
But to ensure her safety, what does Mordecai do? Like any good father does, he waits outside to check on her status. It says he paced. He paced. In verse 11, And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. You know, I've never had a daughter, but I know the song, Cleaning This Gun. You know, it's, it's like a father that's just waiting for his daughter to come back from this date with this guy. And he's checking, he's going to make sure that everything's going right. And if it's not, there's going to be some trouble. That's Mordecai. He's out here pacing back and forth, wanting to know what's going on with Esther, his, his uh, adopted daughter. And that's what we see him doing in verse 11 looking out and caring about Esther's well-being. What a great dad. But This is until Esther was proclaimed the winner. She won the ancient Near East beauty contest. In chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. So Esther wins the, the, the big contest, and now she's the queen. She's the queen of all the land. She's literally at the height of the society. And this is when Mordecai begins to sit at the king's gate. Some people think this was an official role. Some people think he's just hanging out. But Mordecai begins to sit within the king's gate, and it was here that he overheard two men that were close to the king, who hated the king, who were furious with the king, who wanted to kill the king. I like this name, Big Van. Big Van. You looking for a baby name? Big Van. That's a great name, right? Big Van. That's such a funny name to me. Big Van and Teresh, they were wanting to cause harm to the king. And Mordecai overhears this, and we have to understand who Mordecai is, who Esther is, who the Jews are to these people. They're captives. They are captives to, this, to these people. King Ahasuerus is an enemy king who has captive, who's put them captive as a people. And here Mordecai is overhearing about maybe a coup, maybe a, a mutiny, maybe some way that, that these two men are going to kill the king. But instead of letting them do so, what does he do? He shows his loyalty to the king by informing Esther about these men. What does Esther do as any good wife? She tells her husband, the king, about what these two men wanted to do. And the king has the two men executed. And this all provides us with a setup of who Esther is, who Mordecai is, and sets up the showdown that's about to happen. There is a showdown that is about to happen in the next three chapters of this story that many of you already know about, but we're going to talk about. In verse 1 of chapter 3, the king promotes this man named Haman. This man named Haman to the second highest position in the land. He was so prestigious and so powerful that people would bow and pay homage to him as he passed through the streets. Interesting note about Haman before we continue. What does it call Haman? 
verse 1, it says, Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. That's a mouthful. Agagite. Well, who is Agag? There would have not been a Haman if back in 1 Samuel 15, Saul had done what he was told to. Saul was told to kill King Agag and all the descendants and all the animals and all the children and all the women. And apparently, well obviously, we know he didn't. Because here is this man, generations later, by the name of Haman, who would wind up being the, one of the Bible's most evil people. But if Saul had done what he was told to way back in 1 Samuel 15, there would be no descendants of Agag, who Haman obviously was, because the Bible calls him this Agagite. But that's a story for another time. Notice, real quick, before we move on, who did we say Mordecai came from? He's a Benjamite. Guess who else was a Benjamite? Saul. King Saul. Whoa, all the connections are happening here. This could have been a long rivalry that was happening right before our very eyes. Mordecai being a Benjamite, Saul being a Benjamite, and Haman being an Agagite. There might be this long-seated rivalry happening right before our eyes in this text. But with that, let's read verse 2 of chapter 3. It says, And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. You see, Mordecai was a devout Jew. He was someone who still believed in Jehovah God. He was a Benjamite. He refused to bow or pay homage to any other man. Why? Well, probably because he remembered back in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5, it says in the Ten Commandments, You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So Mordecai refused to bow down to this other man. And this obviously is not going to go well with Haman, is it? Why? Because the king, the all-powerful king of that time, was telling everyone, he commanded concerning Haman, that you are to bow and to pay homage as he walks through the streets. So Haman is not going to take this very well, is he? Let's read the next few verses. Verse 3, Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily that he would not listen to them, nor would, nor, uh, that he told it to Haman, to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Hasaris, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Hasaris, they passed pure, that is, the lot, before Haman, to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to the king Ahasuerus, 
There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it to the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman had commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each of the provinces, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of the king Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring, and the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews." both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder their possessions. Sound familiar? I feel like someone else has tried to exterminate all of the Jews before. Haman was the first. And here in this chapter we find, in this section that we've just read, that Mordecai stood up for what was right, regardless of the consequences. You see, because day after day, the people at the gate would tell him, listen, why aren't you obeying the king's command? It's not really hard. All you have to do is bow and pay homage. All you have to do is do this simple thing, and then you don't have to worry about it ever again. And they tested him with this over and over to see if his principles would hold. What does it say? The verse says, to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. You know, it's one thing to say a lot and to walk, to talk the talk, but it's a lot harder to walk the walk, is it not? Mordecai was tested to see if his words, if his principles, if his faith would stand. But the text tells us that Mordecai let them know that he was a Jew. He did not hide the fact that he was a Jew as he told Esther to do. He was not hiding it. He was proud of it. It is because of his complete unwillingness to bow down that Haman sought to destroy all the Jews to make an example of him. Because of this one man who wouldn't bow and pay homage, he was going to kill all of the children, all of the women, the young and the old to make this example. So he goes to the king and tells him about this grave misconduct from this Jew, Mordecai. The king says, listen, you do whatever you got to do. I've promoted you, I've given you my ring, you go ahead and you take care of it. So he writes this decree, Haman writes the decree that all the Jews must be annihilated. And he seals it with this king's signet ring. I think we need to stop right here and understand what this means. You realize that once the king's signet ring was stamped onto that decree. It's as if it was already completed. It's as if it was already done. It's as good as done once that signet ring had sealed the letter. 
There was no stopping it. The entire Jewish race was going to be annihilated. Men, women, children alike would be wiped from the face of the earth if Haman's will was accomplished. How does Mordecai respond? How does Mordecai hear this news? Does does this make Mordecai go about and stir everyone up to rebel? Does he go get some pitchforks? Does he go to all the people of the land and say, listen, we're going to be annihilated. We have got to fight this thing. Is this an action movie where Mordecai, like Gideon maybe, might get this army together and go fight? To fight against this impending doom? No. Let's read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. And when went out into the midst of the city, he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So instead of fighting, instead of choosing anger, instead of choosing vengeance, instead of running, maybe, uh, trying to run away from this doom, Mordecai tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He cried aloud with a bitter and loud cry. What did the people do? They followed his lead. They followed what Mordecai did. They did the exact same thing. They put on sackcloth. They cried. They went through the streets mourning this impending doom to the point that Esther hears the cries of her people and started a back-and-forth conversation within the next few verses of this chapter in chapter 4 with Mordecai. And she's informed of this plan that Haman has. You know what she does after that? She's not really sure what to do, if anything. But what does Mordecai do? He encourages her not to keep silent. Not to keep silent on this, but to rise up from the place you have been given as queen and do something. Verse 14 is where we get the classic verse, you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You see, Mordecai was the one who said that. Mordecai was the one who told Esther, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And this information, this encouragement, launches her to stand up for her people to the point that she says, if I perish, I perish. Verse 16 of chapter 4. So Esther has a new plan that she's going to do to get back, not get back at Haman, but to stop Haman. So she's going to throw this banquet. She's going to throw a banquet that guess who's invited to? The king, Esther, and Haman. That's a pretty uh, secluded group, is it not? Haman's a... Haman... Haman is a VIP of this, of this party that she's going to throw, this banquet. 
And so he's going out through the street. He, he's very proud of himself. He, he, he's very uplifted by this news that he is the one that was chosen to go to this great banquet. Haman is all about himself. This is a great move for me, and, and this is just going to enhance what everybody thinks of me. Let's see what happens in verses 9 through 14 of chapter 5. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides Queen Esther, invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king, yet all this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made fifty cubits high, and in, morning, in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it, then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. As Haman went about that day, he was walking about, strutting his stuff, poking his chest out. Now, I'm invited to this great banquet that Esther's throwing. He comes across Mordecai, and Mordecai did not flinch. He was not intimidated in the least. You see, Haman had been given all the riches, all the children, all the promotions, all the advancements, all the invitations that anybody could ever get. But because this one man would not bow or pay homage to him, the rest of it was meaningless. All he could think about was this guy named Mordecai. In response, he was convinced by his wife and some friends, terrible advice, to make a spectacle of Mordecai's death. Hey, you need to build this gallows. Make it taller than all the gallows that's ever been gallowed before and put Mordecai on it. There you go. That way you can go to the banquet without thinking about this guy. And that's exactly what he decided to do. And so throughout the next of this, you know, chapter 6, we see that, Morde that Mordecai is, is the guy, guess who? He's the guy who saved the king's life. And guess what? He was never rewarded for doing that. For warning Esther, who then warned the king that these two guys wanted to kill him back in chapter 2, and the king's reading the Chronicles. And he's like, well, what did we ever do to this guy? Did we ever help him? Did we ever do anything for him? And the guys are like, no, we never did anything for Mordecai. Here comes Haman. Haman comes in the room. He's, he's just like, this is it. And the king goes, Haman, what should we do for the one who the king delights in? And so Haman, guess what he does? He tells him, you should put a robe on that guy. You should give him a crown. You should run him through the streets and let everybody praise his name, right? You should do all these things for the guy who the king delights in. And so he's just dreaming up his dream scenario of how he, would to be, he wanted to be honored. He doesn't know he's literally describing what he's about to have to do with Mordecai, the man he hates. The man he just built the gallows for. And that's exactly what happens. It turns and blows up in his face. The king 
wanted to do something for this simple man who saved his life. So Haman has to do exactly what he wanted to have done to him. And he does it. He takes Mordecai all the, through the streets. He takes them and all the people praise his name. He's got the robe on. He's got the crown on. He's got the rings on. He's got all the different things that he described in this dream scenario. And Mordecai is the one he's given it to. What does Mordecai do after that? How does he respond after he gets this dream you know, scenario that Haman wanted? Does he gloat? Does he stick his tongue out at Haman nine nine in the boo boo? I mean, does he get on? You know, this is what you get. Does he say that'll show you? Does he respond in any sense of vindictiveness? Three verse twelve. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. So Haman just simply went back about his business. He didn't gloat about it. He didn't say, that'll get you. He just went back to his normal life. And here we are at the banquet. Haman goes in and Queen Esther reveals her true heritage and the great evil that Haman was leading. And the king's love for Esther drove him to have Haman hanged on those same gallows he made for Mordecai because he loved Queen Esther. And the showdown is officially over. Haman was hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's wrath subsided, verse 10 of chapter 7. And with that, we've had the setup, the showdown, and now it's time for the salvation. And when I say salvation, I don't mean in the same sense that we understand it tonight, with salvation under Christ, I'm simply saying the salvation of the Jewish race has been accomplished. Haman, one of the Bible's most evil figures of all time, a top five of anybody's list, has been killed. Think about what would have happened if Haman's will had been accomplished. You see, there would not have been any preservation of the bloodline that led to Jesus. There would no longer be the promise of Abraham that went through Isaac and Jacob to Judah to David to Solomon all the way to Mary. The entire race of the Jews would have been annihilated. And where would that leave us tonight? None of us would be here tonight if Mordecai wasn't there. You see, in this story, we've already seen Mordecai was honored because of his actions way back in chapter 2, but what's about to happen in chapter 8 is about to catapult him to the top and the height of society. All that has to happen is Esther to say, this is my father figure. This is my cousin so she tells the king that she's related to Mordecai, that Mordecai was the one who raised her. Let's read verses 1 and 2. On the, on the day King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So he took the, off the signet ring which he had given from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. 
So that same signet ring that sealed the fate of the Jews, it seemed like, was now given to the same person that it was made for, that that decree was made for. Not only that, but Mordecai was given the same role, the same function as king, as not king, but as Haman had in society. He was second only to the king. But the decree is still out there, and so Esther and Mordecai asked the king, can we change this decree? And he extends that scepter and tells her to go ahead and do it. In verses 7 and 9 it says, Then King Hasserah said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the signet king's ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So here we go. This is the end of the story. The salvation of the people. Esther and Mordecai write this new decree for the Jewish people. That they're able to defend themselves upon any nation. And they're able to use the sword to do such. And they're able to do all of these different freedoms that they are now able to do because Esther and Mordecai were there writing this decree for their own people. The salvation had finally come from the hands of Haman. They had finally been saved from the hands of Haman. And look at the difference from the start of this story to where we are right now when it comes to chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Sushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness. And a feast and a holiday, then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. What a tremendous difference we see. And that didn't stop there. Let's look at chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. And all the officials, the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all the doings of the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. Finally, the Jewish race is able to defend themselves, to defeat these nations, to defeat all of their enemies. Why? Because of Mordecai, it says. The fear of Mordecai fell upon them. Mordecai was great. His fame spread. He was increasingly prominent. The text says, Mordecai, who throughout this story was simply described as a Jew. There was nothing special about him. There was already anti-Semitism going about in this time. So under the radar, a study of the Bible's unsung heroes. You might be sitting here tonight or online tonight with us and asking, what did Mordecai do, though? I mean, 
He wasn't the one who actually convinced the king to reverse Haman's plot. That was Esther. He isn't the one who the book is named after. That was Esther. He was just the recipient, really, of what Esther wound up doing. You may be thinking tonight also, how can I be like Mordecai? I'm not in a position to oppose the government. There is no decree to annihilate all Christians. I don't have a younger cousin that I'm going to adopt who's going to become queen of the largest, most powerful nation in the world. I'm just a regular Joe trying to get by. I can't be Mordecai. The fact of the matter is, and the bottom line is, everyone in this room cannot be Esther. But everyone in this room can be Mordecai in their walk with God. In this story, I know we've read a lot of verses, there's a ton of takeaways that we can get from the life of Mordecai. There's so many takeaways that we don't really have the time to discuss them tonight, but I want us to think about one. One takeaway for the remainder of our time tonight is that Mordecai was both persistent and humble in his faith. Mordecai was persistently humble in his faith in God. You know, when you think about these two words, persistent and humble, they don't really seem to go together, do they? To me, they really don't seem to go together at first glance. When I think about someone who is persistent, I think, Someone who is usually headstrong. Someone who usually doesn't take pause to think rationally. They're going to be persistent regardless of whether it's rational or not. A lot of people ask, Jensi, why in the world did you date Ben? And I think her answer's always been, he was persistent. He was headstrong. She really does not like when I mention her. But it's perfect to match because I was persistent. It made no rational sense. But I wanted it anyway. I was persistent in that pursuit. That's what you think about when you think about someone who's persistent. They are going to do what they are going to do regardless of whether or not it makes sense or whether it's the wise thing. When I think about someone who's humble... You usually think about someone who's like a side character, someone who usually doesn't really make the impact that someone who is persistent or someone who is the person that's larger than life. You think about someone who's going to seek peace over conflict. That's what I think about when I think about someone who's humble. How can Mordecai be both persistent and humble? And how can he not only have a persistent faith and a humble faith, how does he have a persistently humble faith? How can this work? Well, we saw it as we went through the story of Mordecai. From the first mention of Mordecai, we see that he had the humility to take on his younger cousin Esther as his own. He had the humility to adopt this girl and raise her as his own. From the very first mention of Mordecai, we see his humility. 
We also see that he had the persistence to sit outside the gate to check on his little cousin, his daughter, Esther, day in and day out, to check on her condition. So from the very first mentions of Mordecai, we see his persistence. We also see that he had the humility to warn this foreign king who he owed nothing. Why? He was raised, he was born in captivity. He had the humility to warn this enemy king who oppressed his people, who sought to kill. He had the humility to warn these people who sought to kill the king. What amazing humility that he had to do that. We also see the persistence that he had not to bow down or to pay homage to Haman, regardless of the consequences. He knew that it was the king's command. He knew that he was supposed to do it. He knew that he would be the only one not doing it. But we see that he had the persistence to do what was right, regardless of the consequences. We see that he had the humility to tear his clothes and to put on sackcloth and ashes instead of stirring up a riot or stirring up a rebellion or hitting the streets and burning things down. We saw that he had the humility to tear his clothes and go to God instead. We saw that he had the persistence to encourage Esther to speak up for the sake of God's people, to tell her that she had come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That took persistence. We see that he had the humility to not gloat, to not stick his tongue out, not na 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 boo boo at Haman when all the things blew up in his face. We see that he had the persistently humble faith that led him to go from a simple captive to becoming second in all the land of the most powerful nation in the world. For a moment, I want you to imagine that there was no Mordecai. For a moment, I want you to imagine tonight what the Bible would be like if Mordecai had never been born. If there was not someone who with persistence and humility fought against the evils of Haman. If Mordecai was not there to warn Ahasuerus of the two men who sought his life, if Mordecai was not there to encourage Esther to speak up and do something for God's people, if Mordecai was not there to lead his people by example by not rebelling but going to God and lament in prayer, there is no way to quantify the impact that this one man, Mordecai, had on the whole of Scripture. What an amazing example of someone who perfectly shows us tonight how to both be persistent and humble at the same exact time. You know, when it comes to his persistence, without it, he would not have stood out against anyone else. And when it comes to his humility, he would not have been honored or risen to the height of society and second over all the land. But because he was both persistent and humble, the Bible says in chapter 10 and verses 1 through 3, the king Ahasuerus imposed tribute 
on the land and on the islands of the sea, now all the acts of his power and his might, and the account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus, and was great among the Jews, and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people, and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Mordecai, the unsung hero. We noticed how Mordecai was mentioned before Esther at the beginning of our study. And now we're seeing that Mordecai was mentioned last. Mordecai is the hero of this story. You know, when it comes to our walk with God, there are times that we must be persistent. It takes persistence to be faithful sometimes. It takes persistence to say no to the lust of the flesh. It takes persistence to say no to the lust of the eyes. And it takes persistence to say no to the pride of life. But it also takes humility to walk with God. Humility to put others' needs above our own. Humility to subject ourselves to God's will, even when it conflicts with what we want and what we desire. It takes humility to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. Tonight you may be sitting here thinking, well, what can I do in the kingdom of God? What difference can I really make? Do you think Mordecai ever thought that? Being a captive from birth? As he grew up, he knew he wasn't a free man. And here comes the king of the most powerful nation in the world commanding him what to do. What difference could he really make? But because he was persistently faithful, and humble. He saved the entire race that brought us the Christ. You see, in the Bible, there are many characters that fly under the radar. There are so many unsung heroes that don't get the highlighting that they should. I believe Mordecai is one of those. How can I be like Mordecai? Well, you can be persistent in your faith in God. How can I be like Mordecai? You can be humble in the way that you approach people, in the way that you approach distress, and in the way that you approach life. It's going to take both of these things, persistence and humility, for us to be like this unsung hero, Mordecai. I want to thank everyone for their attention tonight. We're going to be closed in prayer by our brother Aubrey Strickland. And next week we're going to be studying about a New Testament unsung hero in our study under the radar. Aubrey?